Well said. Amen. All right. You have a seat. So I got to be honest, singing that song reminded me of my high school Spanish classes where I did quite well on the written tests, but when it came time to actually speak Spanish on the actual test of like, do you know what you're talking about? I was terrible. And that's to my shame. And I really wish I'd have paid more attention, but it made me wonder, have you ever had a really tough test? Like what is the toughest test you've taken in your life? Was it the ACT or the SAT? Was it for a high school class or a college class? Was it for a professional certification? Maybe for the guys in the room, was it sitting with a dad and asking if you could date his daughter or more so asking if you could marry the daughter? That can be a pretty tough test. Uh, maybe it was your driving exam. Wait, no. Like, we've seen how we drive. Like, that's obviously not a tough enough test for us here, is it? One of the more difficult tests I took was during seminary. In seminary, I had several oral exams, which forced me to have no notes in front of me and just ask and answer questions from the professors. And one of those was in a church history class where I was taking it independently during the summer. I had two big papers that were due and two oral exams. That was the whole of it. So all of those were 25% of the grade. So the first time I sat with Dr. Ray in his office taking this exam that would last an hour and a half, being peppered with questions on church history up to a certain point, it was a little intimidating. And Doc said he would just start asking questions. He would drill down on an area until it was obvious I didn't know what I was talking about. And then he'd jump to another area. So several questions into the test, he started asking questions that I did not remember in the course material. But I had previously before that been a high school history teacher and I had an undergrad in history. So I leaned on my previous history nerd experience and answered several of the questions until it finally got to a point where I had to admit, Doc, I have no clue what we're talking about. He had a surprising response of getting a big grin on his face, chuckling a little bit and kind of laughing it off. He goes, oh, Fitz, that's fine. The last several questions haven't even been part of the exam anyway. I'm just enjoying the conversation with you. I knew you were a history guy. Like, Doc, do you see how sweaty I am? This is a fourth of my grade. You can't do that. He goes, oh, no, it's fine. This is fun. In that moment, the test giver's definition of fun and the test taker's definition of fun were like light years apart. By the way, he did that to me two more times in that same exam and the next one I took too. He's just not a nice guy in that moment. But it makes me wonder, have you ever taken a really tough test and maybe the toughest test are when people come up to us and they ask us a question kind of randomly, kind of out of the blue to challenge us. Any parents in the room? Right, You have been tested by your kids at some point. by any parents of teenagers and that you know, like the teens are going to test you at some point. And they ask you this question kind of out of the blue. Well, that happened to Jesus all the time in his ministry. And one of those situations is recorded for us in Luke chapter 10. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that is a great question. Honestly, that's a question every one of us should ask. That's a question every one of us must answer. And your answer to that question will determine your eternity. But this man was 
an expert in religious law. He wasn't asking because he was curious. He was asking to challenge Jesus, to test Jesus. So Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? After all, you're the expert. What do you think about this? Now, with that question, Jesus does not give all of us permission to just interpret the Bible however we want. Well, this is what it means to me. In fact, that would be a terrible way for us to approach God's word. That's a terrible way to approach anything. Try using instructions for something and changing what those instructions are. Well, this is the way I interpreted it. It just won't work for you. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. I want to know how you interpret it because... I'm testing your interpretation. Have you correctly understood what God has communicated in his word, through his word? Well, the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now here, this religious expert is quoting two significant Old Testament passages. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, a passage called the Shema. And if you were with us last week, we learned that Hebrew word, Shema. I had everybody say it. You can say it with me right now. Shema. Right? It's a fun word to say. And it simply means hear or listen. It also has the idea of obedience wrapped into it. And the way that Jewish people would refer to a verse or a passage of scripture is they would quote the first word or the first phrase of that passage. And so Deuteronomy 6 has a passage known as the Shema because that's the first word in the passage. Here, Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is God alone. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then it goes on from there. So this religious expert quotes the Shema to Jesus, says, well, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? You know, what's the law said? The law says love God. Then he quotes from Leviticus 19, which tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, later in that same passage, it also instructs us to love the stranger. But the way that most Jewish people of that time understood it was to love your neighbor. And neighbor could also mean it it had the idea that your neighbor was your friend, your people group, your tribe, the people like you. So love your people as yourself. So this guy says, love God, love people. And Jesus says, right on. That's exactly it. Do this and you will live. But this guy, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? If I got to love my neighbor as I love myself, who is that neighbor I got to love? Friend, he wanted to know how Jesus defines neighbor. But how do you define neighbor? Is your neighbor just the person who lives close to you? Is the neighbor the person who is like you? Is your neighbor the person you like? How do we define neighbor? My wife and I have been blessed with really great neighbors all throughout the years. We had a neighbor at one point who became kind of an adopted grandmother for our kids and then became a dear friend of our family and even extended family. And just a great gal. We had other neighbors who have an in-ground pool. And when we lived next door to them, they invited us to use that pool as if it were our own. And they just opened their lives and opened their home and opened their pool to us when we had very little kids. And were just very generous to us. And they were great neighbors. Not only because they let us swim in their pool, but that just kind of defines the whole of how they open themselves to us. On the other side of that same house, the other side of our house, we actually lived next door to Santa and Mrs. Claus. They were our neighbors. My kids love that I'm showing this picture of them at such a great age. But 
The interesting thing with Saint and Mrs. Claus, their, their favorite holiday was actually Halloween. <laughs> but they were great neighbors and they loved us well. But one of the things we learned along the way and we continue to learn is that the more neighborly we are, the better relationship we have with our neighbors. The better neighbors we are, the better neighbors we get. That's just one of these things. So this guy is asking, well, Jesus, who do I have to treat as my neighbor? And maybe the better I treat my neighbor, the better it's going to go for me. But who is that neighbor? And so Jesus answers him with a story. Jesus so often answered with a story. Jesus was a master storyteller. That's why we're calling this mini-series we're in Storyteller. We're taking a look at some of the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us, the power in those stories. And this series, Storyteller, is actually part of a bigger series we're in this year as we're pursuing Jesus every week for 52 weeks here in 2023. We're using the book Quest 52 to help us do that. And this is a resource. If you are newer to us and you don't yet have a copy of this, I encourage you to pick up a copy. We have discounted copies for you and a friend and to read through it together. And you don't have to start right from the beginning. You just jump into the chapter we're on and go from there. But don't do it alone. And this resource is to help us get more familiar with the Bible. It's got a gospel reading, an Old Testament reading, New Testament readings every week. It's got discussion questions for us to ask and answer with others who are going through the journey with us. Because we know that we are better together. We are designed and created for relationship. This is the thing we're using in most of our small groups this year. We're going to be launching some small groups in just a couple weeks. We've got a group launch night coming up. If you're not yet in a group, I encourage you sign up and jump into a group It will be one of the best things you can do for your spiritual development this season. And you'll just walk through this. You'll have some questions and conversations with others on this. And the point of all of it is to help us get more familiar with Jesus, to get to know Jesus better. So here's the story Jesus told. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. Now this journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 17-mile trek that goes downhill about 3,000 feet. And it is a rocky, craggy way. It gets narrow at points. There are steep drop-offs along the way. There are caves and crevices along the way. And it became known during that era as the Bloody Path. Because this was the place where bad guys and bandits would hang out to do other people harm and to take from them. And so even though Jesus is making up this story, he's telling his story here. But like he did with all of his stories, it was a story that could be true. It was kind of historical fiction in a sense, right? So Jesus tells this story, but then he goes on. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. And then came by, next verse, a temple assistant. And he looked at the man who'd been beaten and left for dead lying there, but he also passed by on the other side of the road. Now, these are the guys you would hope would be most helpful. 
These religious servants, these people who love God, you would hope that they would tend to this guy and take care of his wounds, but instead they pass him by. And maybe they were just too busy to be inconvenienced by him. Maybe they had too many other religious duties going on. Maybe they did not want to become ceremonially unclean, spiritually unclean, because for someone in their position to take care of a man like that would make them unclean, and they had to go through a cleansing ritual to become spiritually clean again. Or maybe... Maybe they just thought this guy got what was coming to him. That was a common mindset in that culture at that time. That we get what we deserve. This man should have been more righteous. He deserved what he got. But whatever the reason was, they walked past. And then Jesus says this. But then, next verse. Yeah. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Samaritan. If you didn't already recognize this story, you may recognize it now as the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan. That's a phrase that has taken root in our culture, and it's a good thing. To be a Samaritan, a Good Samaritan, means that you are someone who helps out somebody else. You take care of someone when they're in need. To be a Good Samaritan is a good thing for us. There's even a law called the Good Samaritan Law that if you are helping someone in need and you accidentally harm them in the process, you're protected from litigation. You see somebody stuck in a traffic accident, they're stuck in a burning car and you pull them out and you actually break their arm doing it. You're protected from getting sued. If you see somebody who needs CPR and you give them CPR and you break their ribs, because by the way, that's probably going to happen when you give CPR, but you're protected from getting sued by that person. To be a Good Samaritan is a good thing. But to the Jewish people of Jesus' day, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They define it right, a despised Samaritan. And this goes back centuries. It dates centuries back to when the Israelites, the Jewish people, had been conquered by other nations and deported from their land and sent into exile. And they were sent away. But eventually they began making their way back to Jerusalem and back to their land. But some of those people settled in the area of Samaria in that land. But Samaria was also the place where the Assyrian Empire sent their despised people, their unwanteds. The people they didn't want in their neighborhood, they sent to Samaria. And the Jews who settled in Samaria started to intermingle and intermarry with the Assyrians in Samaria. And the other Jewish people who had kept their bloodline pure looked at these Samaritan Jews as half-breeds, as dogs, as despised Samaritans. And so here they are. And this has lasted. It created this this deep chasm between them, this intense racism between them. So Jesus here makes the Samaritan the good guy, which just turns everything on its head, as Jesus often did with his stories. So the Samaritan has compassion for him, and he goes over to him, and he soothed the man's wounds with olive oil and wine, and he bandaged them. He sacrificed his own goods. He would have had to touch the man to bandage him, making himself physically, spiritually unclean in that moment. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an end. To do that meant that he would then be walking the rest of that journey. And we don't know how far along the road it was, but no matter how far it was, he trekked forward on foot while he put the hurt man on his donkey. And then he took care of him. He didn't just hand him off to somebody else, but continued to help this man. 
The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, which was a tremendous amount of money for someone in that day. And he told him, take care of this man while I'm gone. If his bill runs higher than this, I will pay you the remainder the next time I'm here. He sacrificed his money, his time, his convenience, even his cleanliness physically and spiritually. And at this point, Jesus stops the story, looks at the religious expert and says... Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Well, this religious expert responded, the one who showed him mercy. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say the good Samaritan. Doesn't even say that that despised Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Just the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, right on. Now go and do the same. And right there, Jesus redefines what it means to be a neighbor. He redefines it not only for his audience at that time, but for all people, including all of us, all the time. But Jesus not only redefines what it looks like to be a neighbor, but how to love your neighbor. And not only redefines what it is to love your neighbor, but also what it is to love God. Because Jesus' audience hearing this would have heard Jesus' question this way. Which of these three loved God with all his heart his soul, mind, and strength by loving a stranger as himself. See, the neighbor, according to Jesus, is no longer just the person in close proximity to you. It's no longer limited to the people like you. It's no longer limited to the people you like. Neighbor goes far beyond that. And let's be honest, it's easy to love some people. Now, some people are easy to love. It's easy for me to love my wife. Probably a little less easy for her to love me. I can be more difficult, but she chooses to anyway. It's easy for us to love our kids. Easy for all of us to love our friends and to love at least some of our family. Right? It's easy for us to love the people who treat us well, who are kind, who are generous. It's easy to love the people who are lovable. But Jesus says, you don't have that option to only love those people. You need to love even the ones who are less lovable. See, he's asking us to extend his love beyond the easy categories, beyond those easy lines. He says, my love transcends all of that, and so must your love. His love transcends language and geopolitical boundaries and conversations on race and ethnicity. His love transcends conversations on climate change and the myriad of political issues. His love transcends gender issues and immigration issues. Wealth and poverty issues. It transcends college loan forgiveness issues and college sports. His love transcends whether you're a dog person or a cat person. His love transcends whether you like deep dish or thin crust pizza. It's pizza. Just enjoy it. His love transcends whether you take your coffee black. I don't know why you would. That's gross. Or you mix it with hot chocolate and creamer and turn it into a mocha and enjoy it the way God intended all good things to be enjoyed with sweet, rich creaminess. And no matter where you are on all of those, if you're a black coffee cat, bad college sport person, God still loves you and he desires the rest of us to love you still. His love transcends all of that. He says you need to cross the lines that otherwise you might not be willing to cross. Love those people across those borders, whatever the border might be. See, what Jesus is getting at is this, that our love for God will be demonstrated in part by our love for other people. That the way we love God in part is how we love the people God made. 
God created them. He loves them. He desires us to do the same. doesn't mean we approve of everything, but it does mean we extend at the minimum compassion to them. It does mean we have the desire to see them experience God's love as we have. But let's be honest. Some people are easy to love, but others, man, it's harder to love the people who are less lovable, right? Those people who have hurt us, who've wounded us, who've betrayed us, who've said things against us, who've turned our words, who we thought they were a friend, but then we found out they were just using us for their own advancement, whether it's in school, on the sports team, at work, with the boss, behind your back, those people who have done things and said things, maybe it happens at school, maybe it happens in the classroom, maybe it happens in the hallway, maybe it happens in the boardroom, or it happens on the line, maybe it happens on the job site, maybe that person even in the family. Let's just admit, no one can wound us quite like family can, right? But Jesus doesn't give us the option to only love the lovable. In fact, we're to love those who we might even otherwise have reason not to love. And from that forces us, at least it forces me to ask the question, are there any people, do I have any contempt in me, any resistance, reluctance in me to love certain groups of people, certain types of people, even certain specific people? That's a question we all have to wrestle with. And if the answer is yes, then God says, get over it. Learn to love them. So Jesus says those people are not your enemy. They're not to be despised. They're not against us. Those people are our neighbors. And we're to love our neighbor as ourself. They need our help. They need our love. They do not need us to try and defeat them in argument or to alienate ourselves from them. In fact, our mission is to go to them, to help every single one of them find and follow Jesus. So let me give us a few suggestions for how we do that. It's not an exhaustive list, but this will get us started. For starters, we can pray. We can pray for those people, especially the ones who are difficult to love. The, the more I pray for the people who, and, and I'm not saying like, oh God, there's this person who hurt me. I pray you would just crush them and send fire. Like, don't pray those kinds of prayers for them. Right? I'm talking, we, we pray like, God, would you give me compassion for them? God, would you give me eyes to see the people around me who I might otherwise just walk right by? God, would you help me notice them? And God, would you give me courage to help them? God, would you help me see how I need to help them? God, would you make my heart more like yours? Would you give me a heart of compassion? And we begin praying prayers like that. And then when we encounter those people, we listen. I mean, we listen first to God, to what he has to say, and we then obey it. But then we engage with people. We listen to him. And as we listen to him, we realize that sometimes those people who we think are so unlovable, that they have a reason for being that way. Sometimes they've had a lot of unlovable things happen to them that have formed them into the way they are. Sometimes when we hear their story, we find a whole lot more common ground than we anticipate. Sometimes we learn a whole lot more about God by somebody who's had a very different experience in this world than we have. 
And so we listen. And some of my favorite questions are just looking at somebody and saying, hey, tell me your story. What's been your background? What's been your history with whatever? What are some of the best moments of your life? What are some of the hardest things you've had to overcome? What's been your experience with God? What's been your experience with church? What's been your experience with people like me? And when we hear their answers, don't listen to just respond. If the opportunity presents itself, share with them. We we share with them our story, not to just be heard by them, but we share our story in hopes that we share what God has done. It's God's story in our lives, that we share the hope we have in Jesus, that we share what Jesus has done in hopes that they see their need for him. And maybe even more than just share our story, we share what we have. We share our compassion. We share like that Samaritan did, our time, our energy, our resources. And when we do that, we we serve them. If we're going to share with them, we serve them. And so we look for ways to practically get our hands dirty and messy. And if what they need seems beyond us, then we go back to the step one and we say, God, help me see what I can do. And let me do what I can do and leave the rest up to you. You know, and all this, it comes down to just noticing them. Like the priest, the Levite, they they noticed the guy who was left for dead. But they didn't like notice. They noticed with their eyes, but not with their hearts. So when I say we gotta notice them, I mean we 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 see them and we allow that to stir compassion within us. Church, if we are to live surrendered to Jesus, then that means we've surrendered to others as well. We surrender like the Samaritan did. We surrender our cleanliness and our comfort. We surrender our convenience and our compassion, our money, our time. We surrender what we have to help someone else. And if we're going down the road and we are just too busy to see the need or to meet the need, then the reality is we're just too busy. And maybe we need to slow down so we can notice more and serve more and share more. Listen more. Pray more. Now, I don't want us to think this is the whole thing that Jesus was getting at. This is really important, that our mission is to help others find and follow Jesus. But do you remember where this all came from? Do you remember why Jesus told the story in the first place of the Samaritan? Well, it was to answer the question, who's my neighbor? But do you remember how they got there? This religious expert trying to trap Jesus says, well, how can I be sure I'm saved, essentially? I mean, he says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? How can I be sure I'm saved? And Jesus says, well, if you love God and you love people, like truly loving God, truly loving people, it's a pretty good indication that you've been rescued by God. But let me be really clear on this. That's a response to what God has done that does not earn or initiate God doing a saving work in our lives. See, the Apostle Paul, an early church leader and missionary, wrote a letter to the church at a city called Ephesus. Inspired by God, these were his words. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Now, this word believe, we could also translate faith. So you've been saved by grace through faith. And you can't take credit for this, he says. It's a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. We haven't done anything good to get a reward from God. So none of us can boast about this. No, no, no. God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you've been so good. You've been so loving to those neighbors near you. Oh, you've loved me so well. Now I think I'll save you. Now you get my goodness. No, 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 no. Scripture actually tells us that God first loved us. We love God because he loved us first. He's the initiator and the author of love and goodness in all of our lives. So our response is to love him in return and to love other people as he would see we don't begin this thing the the picture that that helps me think through this is you know scripture tells us that that we all have sinned and we all have earned an eternity apart from god because of our sin like that's the reward we get not salvation by god for doing good things but the reward that we have coming to us is eternal separation hell damnation that's not good like, it's not a good reward. And so we are drowning in an ocean of our sin. That's the picture scripture paints for us. At best, we're treading water, but most of us, it's like over our heads. Right? Like we're drowning in our sin. And so God reaches down with a hand of grace, right? God's hand is grace reaching down to us. Our response is in faith, we reach up our hand and grab hold of God's grace hand. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace is gripped by faith, by trusting God and what he has done. And all the work has already been done by God. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us with a big nasty wooden cross and then rolling away a big heavy gravestone. Jesus took the death we deserve. He took the separation we deserve. He took our sin upon his shoulders and became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God so that we could step into the brand new forgiven freed life that he has for us and then Jesus resurrected in a demonstration of power and authority over sin over grave over hell and said now I'm going to go prepare your place and I want you there with me friend if you have never grabbed hold of God's grace by faith before today is your day don't wait don't delay Grab hold of it today. God is reaching out to you with his grace hand. Will you take hold of it? There's no more important decision you'll make. There's no more important question you'll ever answer than how to inherit eternal life. You receive God's grace through faith. Now, salvation, I want to be really clear about this, is not a result of any spiritual work we've done. But once we are saved, it will result in God being at work in us. See, the grace of God, once it enters your life, it will change your life. You don't work yourself to God, but once you surrender to God, God begins a work in you and he changes you. And when that happens, the grace of God changes your life. And this does not mean that you now become immune to sin or immune to temptation. It doesn't mean that you automatically become a perfect person. It doesn't mean that you won't have days when you totally mess it all up or that you won't have spiritually dry seasons. It doesn't mean that you will automatically overcome addictions and bad habits and all that. Because I wish it meant all that. It doesn't. But it does mean this, that once God is in your life, your life will begin to look different. And the longer you journey with Jesus, the more God's glory will be on display in your life, the more it will affect and infect all those around you with hope. In fact, it'll look like this. You begin underwater and and say, right? God rescues you and he saves you. And the longer you journey with him, the more his light shines through you. But this is like a, a extreme 
far away from you. If we look at the day-to-day, it actually looks a little bit more like the stock market. Because the reality of journeying with Jesus is we have peaks and we have valleys. We have really great high moments and we have some low ones. But the beauty is that the longer we journey with him, even the valleys then are higher than the peaks once were when we first got started. See, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And our faith then is proved genuine by our ongoing faithfulness. He says, how can I be sure I'm saved? Well, what does your life look like? And it doesn't mean that you're saved by anything you do, but once you have been saved, it means God's gonna do something in you. And your, your life does not bear fruit of that. If the pathway of your life does not lead to Jesus, you need to ask who you're really surrendering to. You need to ask what path you're on. And this raises the question, if faith is how I take hold of the grace of God, what happens if I lose my faith? So real quick, I want to just explore with you one of the most hot-button, spiritually divisive topics throughout church history. Because there's really two big answers to this. Either one, you can't ever lose it, or you can let go of it. Either it wasn't genuine to begin with, or you can let go of your faith. Now, I want to be really honest with where I stand on this and many of our church leaders. We would suggest that throughout a study of Scripture, and let me pause here. If you do not agree with me on this, that's okay. Hang in there, because I think you'll agree with what I'm about to say next. This is not a central doctrine of faith. This is an important issue, but it's not the essential issue. But we would say that the New Testament certainly, and even throughout the Old Testament, gives many clear indicators that we can let go of our faith and our salvation. But that is not a, oh no, I just sinned, have I lost my faith kind of moment. It is a long process of willful rejection and denial and refusal of faith will return away from God. Now, some would still say, well, was it ever genuine to begin with? Or did they lose it? And honestly, here's where I think we can agree. We're asking the wrong questions. We've allowed Satan to spark this question, can it be lost or is it always there? When the real question is not that. See, this question just gets us in the wrong places. It gets us like scared and like, oh, you know, have I lost it? Am I doing enough? And it worries us. Or he gets us lazy. Well, what's the bare minimum? If God's grace is so big, then like I can keep doing the things I want to do like sin. Like, no, no, no. Or it gets us all judgy. Well, that person didn't really follow Jesus in the first place. They were never really good, you know. And, and like those are the wrong issues and the wrong questions. The question that I think is the more important question is this. If faith is proved genuine by ongoing faithfulness, then how do I live a life of continual faithfulness and help others do the same? We never want to ask the question, was it lost? Can it be lost? No, no, no. How do we ensure that that question never needs to be asked? We live a life of ongoing faithfulness. Great. How do we do that? Be faithful every day. Here's what that looks like. When you wake up in the morning... When that alarm clock goes off, don't hit snooze. Hit your knees and pray. You wake up before the alarm clock and you're frustrated, just start praying. You wake up in the middle of the night for some of you older people. Just say your prayers. And here's the first prayer to utter. God, thank you that I am saved by your grace through faith. 
and not because of anything I've done. Whether on my best day or my worst day, I still need you. Whether on my best day or my worst day, your grace still outgraces me. And so God, by faith, I respond. I thank you that I don't get to boast. I thank you that it doesn't depend on me and what I've done. I thank you that you've already done everything needed for me to be saved. And so I respond with a life of gratitude. And I respond by letting my life overflow. And God, I want other people to know the hope and the assurance and the joy and the freedom of the salvation I have. So I'm going to live on mission for you today. And on those days... When you begin that way, you will find yourself living differently. And on some of those days when faith is in short supply, that's when you reach out to your small group. And you say, man, I'm having trouble. My faith is short today. I need you to remind me of what God's done. I need you to keep me accountable. I need you to help me in this journey. And when you have that in your life, then you begin every day by faith. And you'll never have to worry where it goes. So friend, here's the answer to that. You want to be sure? then grab hold of God's grace by faith and never, ever let go. God, we thank you that you are the great grace giver, that salvation is not earned by us, but it is freely given by you. God, we thank you that you grant us the ability to put our trust in you. God, I pray that we would all have the courage to trust you more and more and more, that we would trust your good work in our lives. We thank you that you are the one who has begun a good work in us, that you have saved us to do good things. And God, you will bring that work to completion, your word says. We thank you that your love doesn't go anywhere. God, we thank you that even if we've had seasons where we have loosened our grip of faith, you are still right there reaching out your hand of grace to us, that it's never millions of miles away. It's simply one turn away. So God, for any who have walked away from you, we pray that today would be the day they just turn around and by faith, grab your hand once again. We pray for those who have never yet turned to you, that they would turn to you in this moment. And grab onto the grace that you so freely give us. God, we pray that we as your church would be known as the most gracious place on this planet. That we would be the most do-gooders. Not for doing good, but simply for loving our neighbor and loving you. Out of a gracious response to the way you've loved us. God, may we notice people. May we hear them. May we listen to them. May we pray for them. May we seek them. May we serve them. May we share with them. All for your glory because God, that's how you love us. Oh God, we pray all of this for your glory and yours alone. Amen.